Well, as we um, prepare our hearts for the ministry of the Word, let's uh, invite God to um, open our hearts and open our minds in this uh, time together. Father, we're grateful that you love us. You loved us so much that you gave us your Son, but Father, you in this redemption, you, you don't just give us eternal life. We get to uh, celebrate that now and be with you now to celebrate your presence. And uh, you also give us not just the Spirit of God, but you give us the Word of God. So we're grateful that we can be here together uh, and study your Word. And we're grateful, God, for the other gift that you give us, the other major gift, and that's the people of God. So we're Grateful to be with your people here today. Would you please come, Father, and encourage our hearts through the message of your word and the truth. By the Spirit of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage we're going to be looking at today is, well, let's see, it's five chapters. We won't be reading all five chapters, but there's one particular verse, a specific verse that we'll be looking at and referring to throughout this time. And in preparing for this time together, this really this passage has become really one of my favorite passages um, in the scriptures. And so I hope it becomes that for you as well. And you can gather from the title today that we're going to be talking about a healthy church and how does a healthy church happen. The main point that we're looking at today is the fact that a healthy church is a gospel church on mission. Acts 9.31 gives us a peek into that reality. Acts 9.31 says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. And that sounds to us, sounds to me at least, like a very healthy church, and it is. And you and I, are, as human beings, are naturally drawn to this kind of a church, aren't we? To this kind of an organization, any kind of group that sounds like that, right? Uh, nobody signs up to intentionally join a church or a group um, that's in conflict, right? There's infighting, grumpy people, and uh, that's in self-destruct mode. Nobody wants that. No one wants to be part of a fellowship of believers that's walking out of fellowship with the Lord and out of step with his spirit, and thereby shrinking and dying. Everyone wants to be part of a winning team, be part of a healthy, happy, growing, gospel-focused church. But it begs the question, how does a healthy church like this happen? What are the best practices that contribute to this kind of culture? In a church, what does the DNA of this local body of believers that we're uh, going to be looking at here today look like? And how can a church that wants to be like this first century church get there from here? First, a healthy church walks in gospel fear and comfort. A healthy church seeks God's leading. A healthy church lives gospel ministry, and a healthy church demonstrates a global. Vision. First, a healthy church walks in gospel fear and comfort. 
I want you to notice in this verse, in uh, Acts 9.31, that, that the believers in this church, and it, by the way, this is not a church, this is the first century church in this region of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Um, they don't wake up one morning and they're all of a sudden healthy, right? Uh, a big part of health is growth, a steady, continuous, intentional growth. And there's a clear pattern here uh, that we're going to see that led to their growth to maturity and health. Now, I want you to notice at the end of the verse that it says that they are growing. It, that is this regional church, multiplied, it says. And that their growth was a result of two seemingly dissimilar things. But they're really two uh, realities, two uh, results and aspects of the same thing. It says that they were walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little goofy to me. It seems a little weird, doesn't it? How do you walk in the fear, walk in fear and in comfort at the same time? Weird, right? Well, not, not really. It's actually two very real aspects two very real functions of the gospel at work in the life of the child of God and in the life of a church. So again, the overarching theme or what we call the big idea of this sermon is a healthy church is a gospel church on mission. So let's talk about what a gospel church is for a minute. about the fact that in order for a church to be a healthy church, at least by my statement, it first needs to be a gospel church. What does that mean? So isn't every church that believes that Jesus is the only way to heaven uh, a gospel church? And in general terms, yes. Yeah, it is uh, you know, what we mean by a gospel church most evangelical churches or all evangelical churches would identify with that. But what we're looking at here in terms of a gospel church goes to just a little bit deeper than that. You see, we believe very strongly here at First Baptist in the gospel. As a matter of fact, the good news that Jesus lived a sinless life so that he could become my righteousness, and so now I stand righteous before God because his righteousness has been given to me, and he shed his sinless blood, and he died a propitious death on that cross, taking my sin on himself so that my sins are completely blotted out, and I now stand justified and guiltless before a holy God, and that he rose victorious from death, alive and very well, after being very dead and buried in a very temporarily borrowed tomb. And by doing so has forever now destroyed death and hell for me and for you because we trust in him and him alone by faith in his finished work. And that God offers you and me as a free gift by his unearned grace that's poured out on you and me at the cross. Eternal life forever enjoying his unconditional love forever in his presence. Amen? Isn't that good news? Isn't that awesome news? And so we believe that those truths, that that good news 
is the entire reason, it's the only explanation that there is for this motley crew to be here and to exist as a church. If there's no gospel, there is no church, right? Now, here's the thing. We firmly believe that the gospel, we would all say that the gospel is where it begins for you and me as a child of God, isn't it? But we don't believe that you only start the Christian life with that good news and then sort of leave it at the altar so that you can then go on to more important things, deeper things, so to speak, as if the gospel is sort of uh, the basics, uh, the stuff we assume, the, the elementary baby steps of the Christian life. Those are the truths that you believe to get saved and become a child of God, and then you begin your Christian life as a Christ follower, and then you carry on from there to more important things, more deep things. No. If that's what you think about the gospel, the scriptures have something very different to say. And we believe here that, as someone has said, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. I'm going to show you why in just a moment here. Gospel is not just where you and I begin the journey as a Christ follower. It is the journey. And we strongly believe that the life of the child of God is entirely a work of God in us to save us, to sanctify us, and one day glorify us. That we do nothing to get saved or to stay saved. The only thing we do is we exercise faith. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that is just as much a gift of God as the grace that is lavished on us in this free offer of salvation. We do nothing to sanctify ourselves. God does not need your help to sanctify you. God has changed me into something new. A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells me. And he is transforming you and me more and more each day into the image of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that salvation from start to finish, from the prayer to surrender uh, yourself at the altar to that well good and faithful servant that you and I are going to hear one day in the throne room of heaven is all of God and nothing of me. And as we live a continuous, uh, live in, in a continuous process, a daily, moment-by-moment moment process of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, that draws its strength and purpose entirely from the power of this beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, when we live in and through the gospel, and this text gives us some insight about that, we understand what it means to be a child of God. We understand the beauty of the redemption that we have in Christ. We understand why there's such a thing as amazing grace. It's totally amazing. Think about it a second. And if you don't know Christ as Savior today, and if you're on the Facebook listening to me and hearing this, you don't know Christ as Savior today, 
Do you know that God sent his only son so that you could have eternal life? Just let that blow your mind just for a second. And if you and I are not living in that reality every day, we don't get what redemption is. We don't get it. God wants us to get it. But let's look at the text again. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Again, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, separate statement now, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So again, here are two seemingly totally opposite, uh, incongruous ideas together uh, describing a healthy church. They're walking in fear and walking in comfort. So, but let's look at the, the statement before that, the first statement about this church. We see that this church is healthy. It appears to us to be healthy, and rightly so, because it's at peace. See what it says? And it's being built up. So the, the idea of being at peace and being built up are somewhat separate thoughts from the last phrase here, the last sentence here in this verse. But they are connected The last part is a separate statement about the church, but let's look at the first. It says that they were at peace, and we would gather from this, we would uh, assume from this, that this is a peace that's both internal and external. That is, there was no infighting and, uh, you know, no grumpy people, or at least the grumpy people hadn't arrived yet or something. And no problems with uh, folks outside the church either, Right? And, and, uh, and, and that's temporary, we know, right? They will have problems with folks outside the church. But at that point, they were at peace, it says. And, um, and then Luke here makes a separate observation about the church. It says, so they were at peace, and they were being built up. So they were growing. So built up as individuals, right? Growing as individuals growing in their faith, growing in their understanding of, of, of who Christ is, understanding their redemption, understanding what that means in their life, and then growing together as a body. The body was growing. But Luke makes a separate observation about the church in the second part. He says that the growth or multiplication, right, that they were experiencing as a result of, uh, is a result of something very specific. And when you look at it, it just says that they were, it says they grew, and it's kind of easy to kind of skip over the how that happened part. But what he says is that that multiplication that they experienced was the direct result or a product of, a function of their walk. Their multiplication, which indicates that word, a, a steady, invisible, measurable, consistent, perhaps even sort of quick, you know, rapid growth comparatively, it has to be attributed to the fact that they're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke is saying. So let's start with this idea of the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord um, is a theme that appears throughout the Scriptures, and particularly, um, you'll probably already know this, in the book of Psalms and in the book of Proverbs. There's a great example I want us to look at in Psalm 33, 8. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe 
of him. Hebrew parallelism, right? So here, fearing is equated with a sense of awe. Fearing God is equated with a sense of awe. Many of the um, other verses that talk about the fear of the Lord throughout Psalms and Proverbs um, uh, equate it through this uh, Hebrew parallelism to being wise, to having understanding, to being um, you know, humbly willing to receive instruction to live righteously. But I think that this verse, and that's why I picked this verse, is uh, more of a, a summary definition of what fearing God is. It's a sense of awe. We're to stand in awe of him, it says. When we think about him, that should inspire awe. Now, nowadays, we completely and totally abuse and overuse the word awesome, don't we? Awesome. It was an awesome view as I was driving down the road, right? What an awesome day we had together, right? Dude, that's an awesome tattoo. Love it, right? Awesome song that we sang or that we listened to. He's awesome. She's awesome. Awesome pizza. Well, maybe that one's not an exaggeration, but, right? But we almost completely have emptied that word of its meaning in today's world and of its impact, really. So here we're, we're told that God is awesome. That is, at the very mention of his name, if we really understood who it is we're thinking about or praying to or singing to, it should take our breath away. We should be astounded. It should inspire awe. It should inspire apprehension. It should inspire fear in the terrifying glory and beauty of the Holy One of Israel. In the beauty of his presence. We're exhorted here to stand frozen. To stand dumbfounded and awestruck in the presence. In the blinding light of the living God. We just don't get that, do we? We don't. There are moments in our lives when we get that. But we don't live in that. We don't walk in that very often. We hear that phrase, to live in awe of God, and then we talk about awesome pizza or something. And our passage says that this church walked in that sense of awe and fear on a continuous basis. So what does that look like? How does one or how does a church walk in the fear of the Lord? How do uh, how do uh, when we do walk in the fear of the Lord? How do we change? How, how does that change how we look at God? How does it change how I live my life? Well, what it means, what it says to me, what it says to us is that first of all, He's God. It's what it changes in me about my view of God. He's God. And I'm not. He is the transcendent one, the creator, the king of everything that is, the sovereign over the whole of creation, all of existence. And I live my life, corum Deo, that is before the face of God, in full view of his eyes. And I'm in constantly constantly in the presence of his blinding brilliance. We don't get that. We don't see that. 
But these people saw that. They lived in that. They walked in that. And because of that, I'm, I'm totally awestruck in the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of my God just shines in my mind and my heart. And in contrast, what also shines in my heart is the fact that I'm struck with my own sinfulness and my own brokenness and my own unworthiness and my own helplessness and neediness and the fact that when I come to God as his creation, I come to him with only one thing, my brokenness. That's it. That's all I have to offer him. Here you go. This is me. Here you go. Not much there. And I also begin to realize that I need a savior who is the only one who can do for me what I could never do for myself. And I cling to the beauty of the gospel in those moments. The gospel that tells me that he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, let's go back to the passage. It says that they walked in the fear of the Lord and also the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of weird, right? Fear and comfort. What is the comfort of the Holy Spirit and how do we walk in it? How does that happen? Well, Jesus spoke about uh, the Holy Spirit being a comforter, right? So it doesn't seem totally incongruous. So Holy Spirit, comfort. In John 14 and verse 16. Uh, in that passage, as well as others, it's, uh, it's translated uh, also uh, helper or advocate or counselor. And Jesus tells us why we can find comfort and help uh, and uh, this advocacy with the Father and why this, this one is the only one who can give us sound, uh, sound counsel here in verse uh, 26, John 14, 26. With the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. He said he was going to send us a comforter, and that that helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, that advocate, the Spirit of God, the counselor, the Spirit of God, would do some things for us. The Spirit of God that lives in you and me as a child of God is the same Spirit that led and empowered Jesus in his life. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? But it's true. He comforted Christ in his agony in the garden and on the cross, and he raised him from the dead. In a supernatural way, both the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were very present in everything, very present and active in everything that Jesus was and everything that Jesus did. And because that same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you and me, this helper or advocate or counselor brings us a comfort that cannot be compared to any other. It's the very same spirit that is sanctifying us, changing us by the power of the transforming gospel through the living word of God as it works in you and me, John 17, 17. Right? Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth, Jesus prayed to the Father. He's the Spirit of God who lives in these mortal bodies and convicts us of sin, 
convinces us of God's righteousness and assures you and me as his children that we will not face God's judgment because Christ has been judged for us. He's the one who teaches us all that God wants us to know, all that Jesus taught and helps us to understand what God is saying to us. He illuminates, the scriptures tell us, the hidden and high truths of God's revelation to us. And he applies it to our hearts every moment of every day. He prays for us when we can only groan and assures us of the Father's unconditional love for us continuously. He's always there to remind us. He gives us gifts, the scriptures tell us, that are spiritual in nature, that come only from God to be used for God and for his church and for his kingdom to build us all up in him to help each other grow. Alone, the Spirit of God produces fruit in us. That is evidence that we are branches in the true vine, John 15. And he grows us up and makes us like our Savior more and more each day until he takes us home. And we get to experience that comfort, the comfort of knowing those truths every moment of every day as he dwells in us. There's comfort in knowing that God's Spirit is always with me. He never gives up on me. He never grows tired of hearing my whining and complaining and the cries of my heart. He never walks away from me. And we can live in that comfort and walk in that comfort. In the very next verse... Not coincidentally, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. These two thoughts are connected. They're not disconnected. There's a peace and comfort for the soul that only God can give us. And all the fears that crop up in my mind and in my heart, as the song says, need to be reminded that my future is secure in Christ Jesus and the truth of his gospel. It's the Spirit of God that calms my fears and gives me peace. That's where Jesus' peace comes from. It's not just this thing that's floating out there and somehow I have to try and find it. It's in me. It's in you. Because the Spirit of God is in me and in you. So what does it mean for the child of God then? To walk in his comfort. How do I do that? So it's definitely accomplished by what I choose to dwell on, right, at a heart level. But it, it goes beyond that. How does a child of God or a church, in this instance, live in such a way that the comforter can do what he does best in our lives? How do I live in the fear of the Lord? Both of those things still kind of hang out there for me. So we've given some... Uh, some foundational principles here about uh, you know, what this walk of the healthy church looks like. But it's more at, a, at a, a head level and a heart level, which is not insignificant, but it's just that. But there's more to the story here than just the internal thought and heart processes that describe what's behind a healthy church culture. There's more here underneath the hood, so to speak. It's not only what I think, but it's what I do as well. So number one, a healthy church walks in gospel, fear, and comfort. Number two, a healthy church seeks God's 
leading. Understanding and accepting the power of the truth of the gospel, that you and I are sinners in constant need of a Savior that has provided all things that we need to live this life, that's one thing. Walking in gospel fear and comfort should change what I look like. It should change what I do, not just what I think. It starts by not just uh, sort of a theological conviction, right? But by life practice, an intentional, uh, almost um, unconscious awareness of the presence of the power of God in me, an awareness that we need him desperately. We need him desperately, that he's always at work in me and through me, and that he's for me and not against me. It's a gospel-generated awareness that God is never silent, that he always is speaking, that he's always teaching, he's always leading, he's always guiding by his Spirit. So it starts with an intentional and habitual seeking of the Lord, of what and where his will will lead us. And here in this church, it started with a consistent pattern of intentionally seeking and purposefully, very uh, purposefully listening to God's clear leading. They didn't just just look for it. They were really listening for it. And they did this always, and they did this first. So let's look at a couple of examples. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 and 29. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember this story? Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And then verse 29 it says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. Now here's the thing. Philip would never have received guidance from the Lord if he wasn't looking for it. If he wasn't ready for it. If he wasn't listening for it. If he wasn't a a man who was humbly aware of his need to stay in touch and in tune with the heart of God, he would never have heard the leading of God. He would never have known that this message was from the Lord unless first he was used to hearing the voice of God. Now, I've never heard the voice of God out loud, but I've heard it in my heart, and I know what it sounds like. In this case, it seems like it was an audible voice, a voice, uh, the voice of an angel of God at that. And God's voice is, is not always, the thing is, it's not always audible, is it, for you and me? I mean, his communication is not always that dramatic, is it? But when God speaks, and he's always speaking, Philip is ready to listen. And the result is that Philip gets to share the beautiful gospel of the cross with a very important East African man, most likely a Jewish uh, Jewish proselyte, and he gets to win him to Christ. Here's another example in Acts 9, uh, verses 10 and 11, Ananias and, and this guy Saul of Tarsus. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, 
Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. <laughs> they were both seeking and listening. So we know the result of that encounter is the introduction of the soon-to-become Apostle Paul to the church that, uh, that's talked about there in Acts 9.31, to his new family of God, an introduction to the world, actually. But this never would have happened, because this was God's plan, unless Ananias was listening, ready, and yielded to the Father, unless he was familiar with the voice of God and seeking constantly to hear God speaking to his heart. And then, in this case, because of Paul being who he was, courageously willing to obey God's will. Here's another one. Cornelius, uh, Cornelius, easier for me to say, and Peter in uh, Acts 10, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw a vision of an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. <laughs> and so the Lord speaks to Cornelius in a very graphic and dramatic way and tells him to, uh, to send men to, to fetch Peter. Remember, that was what he was doing. Uh, to bring him, that is Peter, back to his house. And when these guys were already well on their way, almost there, a, a, a totally clueless Peter gets a message from God because he was listening. He was seeking. Look at what it says in uh, Acts 10, <coughs> 13 to 16, and then later on, 19 to 20. There came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times, or happened three times. And uh, that thing was taken up at once to heaven, that tablecloth or whatever it was. And while Peter was pondering the vision... The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Do you see a pattern here? Do you see a pattern that these Christians are following? This is not random. These people are actively seeking and listening for and used to hearing from God. Uh, each one of these examples is a child of God whose heart was tuned to God's heart. They didn't just stumble into a message from an angel, did they? It didn't just happen. Oh, an angel speaking to me. No, they were seeking it. Or they didn't stumble into a vision of God speaking to them. This is how they lived their lives, it says. Walking in the Lord and in the fear and comfort of the Lord. Understanding and intentionally living in the reality of the, the uh, gospel truth that God saves me and dwells me, fills me, uses me, transforms me, all for the glory of his name. And here we, we know that both Cornelius and Peter listened and sought, they listened for and they sought after and obeyed God's leading. And the result was the first Gentile convert, and actually a whole room full of Gentile converts, it tells us, came to faith in Christ. 
So a healthy church walks in gospel fear and comfort. A healthy church seeks God's leading. And third, a healthy church lives gospel ministry. Another obvious sort of marker, DNA marker here, is the fact that these people made it a habit to share their faith. It was not random. We saw the examples of Philip and Ananias and Peter. They shared their faith, and sharing their faith was just who they were. Right? It's what they did. It's, it became how they roll, right? They ate, they slept, they breathed, they lived gospel ministry. This church didn't wait to have uh, some, you'll note it very interestingly, they didn't wait to have some sort of uh, uh, program or curriculum uh, developed first before they, they uh, told others about Jesus, did they? Interesting. They didn't wait to take a class or uh, be told uh, that they were ready to be witnesses for Christ. Now, hear, hear me. I, I'm not saying that preparation is a bad thing and training is a bad thing or that sir, they're somehow less spiritual or less um, spirit-led. They clearly are, are not those things. We can always be better stewards of the spiritual gifting and the natural abilities that God's given us, right? We can always and we should always uh, work with the sharpest tools possible. That's the idea, right? But being better prepared or not, even having a, a very specific call to gospel ministry or not, every child of God is called and gifted and empowered to live gospel ministry, these people remembered that Jesus had told them, right, it was just a short time ago, Jesus had told them, before he was taken up to the right hand of God the Father, they remembered that, the God, that, uh, that God himself would come and be in them, that the Spirit of God would be in them, and that God was now going to use them, and that they were already witnesses. And that they didn't need to worry even about what to say when the gospel ministry uh, opportunities came their way. They understood that God's Spirit would empower them and even give them the words to say. They got it. They understood the walk of faith. They implicitly, uh, implicitly understood that this Christian life, living in the gospel, sharing their faith, living gospel ministry was a 24-7, 365 proposition. It became part of their new identity in Christ. Very intricate part. Here's another example of this church uh, being one that lived in gospel ministry. The Apostle Paul is uh, a, a brand new believer here in Acts chapter 9, verses uh, 19 and 20. Brand new, you know, fresh, uh, fresh out of the oven. The paint's not even dry yet, right? Just a brand new baby Christian. And what's he doing? Paul is sharing the gospel with his fellow Jews in the synagogues. Didn't somebody tell him he needed to like be certified or something? No, they didn't. For some days, it says he, Paul, uh, was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately, and that's a very important word there, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. You see what's happening here? Are you catching the significance of this? About, not just about Paul, but about what, what 
was the norm in this first century church, among first century Christians. There was no hesitation. There was no waiting period. Uh, the, the ink wasn't even dry in his spiritual uh, uh, birth certificate, right? It, he had no exam to pass, no hoops to jump through. He didn't have to sit before some investigatory, you know what I'm trying to say, easy for me to say, panel, um, some panel to investigate his credentials before he could go out and share Christ. He just went out immediately and began to live gospel ministry. And we know that from all the rest of the history written about Paul, that that was his M.O. all along, that he never diverted from it at all till the day the Lord took him home. I know what you're thinking, yeah, but this is Paul we're talking about. So here's the thing. Paul, right? He's just a guy. As a matter of fact, from what we understand, he was a, a, a short, homely, chubby, half-blind, sort of not-good public speaker guy. Just a guy. Yeah, he was educated. But, and who also, by the way, um, just a short while before this, was, uh, you know, he was snatching Christians up as fast as he could so that he could personally witness their death them being put to death for their faith. So he didn't have much of a fan club, did he, among early believers or unbelievers, Gentiles or Jews at this point. But Christ transformed his heart by the power of the gospel and gave him an an unquenchable desire to share his faith with everyone that God would bring across his path. And and, uh, let's look at Acts chapter 11 for a little bit here. And the hand of the Lord, we're going to look at one passage and then skip down a little bit. And the hand of the Lord was with them, so Paul and, and these people in this church, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And skip down to verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. You notice what's happening here? These people were so invested in their faith. They were so invested in the gospel. And their life was so much about Christ. Gospel ministry was so much about who they were that the unbelievers around them in that area started to make fun of them. Right? And they called them little Christs. You you people are just way too... Christy. There's just too much of this Messiah stuff in you. That's all you guys talk about. That's all you think about. Can't you just be normal? That's what they were saying by that statement, by calling them Christians. It wasn't a nice thing to be called a Christian. It was a derogatory term. Is Jesus the only thing that matters to you? Yes. As a matter of fact, it is. It is the only thing that matters to us. 
They lived gospel ministry. They lived in the light of the gospel, and they shared the gospel naturally and normally and daily. And here's another example in Acts 11, 27 to 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from heaven to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the, uh, all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius, it tells us. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas. So that's really cool. In this section, that it not only demonstrates the second principle of being a healthy church, right, that they were seeking God's leading, right, because by this time, uh, uh, well, in, in, this, in this instance, prophecy was the means that God used, that he gave to a guy named Agabus by the means of the Spirit, But it demonstrates also not just that second principle that they were looking for and seeking God's leading. It also demonstrates the fact that they were living in the gospel. But what's unique here is that prophecy is not about sharing the gospel with unsaved people outside the church. It's not about telling people that they are going to hell if they don't know Christ as Savior. It's about giving the believers here a heads up about a famine that's on its way and the opportunity that this would give them to do gospel ministry among other fellow believers. So it's a totally different, totally other aspect of gospel ministry that's presented here. Feeding hungry people. Yep, that's also gospel ministry. But I want you to notice something. One very important distinction here from what we typically think of when we talk about mercy ministries The believers were not led by God's spirit to take up a collection and give food to everyone. It was only for God's people. Did you see that? For other believers, for the brothers living in Judea. While he could easily have done so and provided the means to do that, to prompt them, to care about the rest of the world, not just the saved. God doesn't do that. Spirit doesn't lead them to feed all the homeless and the hungry in the region. He only leads them to care about the physical needs of believers. Now, before you go, you leave here and say, Pastor Mike said that it's unbiblical to feed the unsaved hungry. But here's the thing. That's exactly what I said. Hear me out. It's not that God doesn't care about the physical needs of the unbeliever. Okay? It's not that God would never lead us, and he clearly does lead us, to care about the hunger of unsaved men and women, boys and girls. We support, as a church, a ministry, and I, as one of your pastors, am a part of the board of directors of a ministry, an organization that does just that. But with this as an underlying motivation to share the gospel of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ with them, a chance to share Christ with them. In this instance, though, God does not lead the church to conduct mercy ministries among the unsaved. 
They are not, clearly not, the priority here. But the biblical pattern or precedent is not to feed the unbeliever, at least here in this passage. It is to be concerned about, to care for, to have a vested interest in, because they were asked to give, you know, put your money where your mouth is, to have a vested interest in the physical needs of believers first, to feed brothers first, to think about their needs first. And so living gospel ministry is not only about sharing your faith and telling an unsaved person about their need of a Savior, but it's also about taking every opportunity that you can to minister to this body, to minister to one another, to care about God's people as God cares about us. That's also gospel ministry, according to this passage. Caring about one another in an unselfish, unconditional way, reflecting back to one another the unconditional love and grace that God pours out on you and me. So a healthy church walks in gospel fear and comfort. A healthy church seeks God's leading, and a healthy church lives gospel ministry. And number four, a healthy church demonstrates a global vision. The fourth principle, and the one least practiced, I would say, by today's evangelical church in America, is the one distinctive characteristic of a growing, vibrant, healthy church that sets it apart from the average, everyday, stagnant, and barely breathing church. A healthy church is always one that highly values and has a clear and demonstrable global vision that is accompanied by an intentional and strategic plan to reach the world for Christ. And there are no two ways about it. There are no two ways about it. If you have a global vision, you set yourself up as a church for growth and health. And we see that here in this first century church. If, we, if, if you and I can only see as far as, uh, you know, five, in a, within a five-block radius of this church, then we're not going to grow. We're not going to be healthy and strong as a local body of believers. And I have to say on a personal level, every church that I've ever been a part of or have uh, had firsthand knowledge of over the past 57 years that I've walked with Christ, any of those churches that has been truly healthy, that is at peace, being built up and growing, right, has been a church that has had a demonstrable global vision. The church that I was uh, first nurtured in and grew up in as a boy and as a teen, the church that, was the church that I was first bap- uh, I was baptized in, I was discipled in, uh, I was uh, a part of that church, really. We were a part of that church up through uh, the time when we were sent out from that church as missionaries to the Dominican Republic. It was a church that had a global vision but not in principle only or as a function of a dedicated sort of section of their bylaws, right? It wasn't just that. Its global vision was demonstrated on many levels in the life of the church, and the least of which, the least of which, was its budget. Not only did this church have an annual missions conference, which, by the way, was the biggest event of the entire church calendar every year. They had regular updates uh, uh, about its 
unusually large missionary family. Not only did they take regular trips as, as a church, as students and adult groups, to other countries to be part of what our missionaries were doing around the world, they gave a full, listen to this, they gave a full one-third of their budget to global missions, not 5%. As a matter of fact, it was just global missions that got a full third of their giving, not uh, global missions and community outreach together. Those were separate budgets. But a full third, over $100,000 annually, went to see the gospel preached in places that had never heard the name of Jesus. Oh, and by the way, this was not a megachurch. This was a church that was about three, three to 400 people. It's the biggest it ever got during the time I was there. And it was demonstrably clear that their priority as a church was not the building, although it was a state-of-the-art facility at the time. Uh, the priority was clearly not uh, the salaries of its pastors and staff, although they were paid well above the sort of living wage of the day. The priority was clearly not weekly activities, even though those were important in classes and Christian education programs, although they were great programs, it, awesome uh, they reached a lot of people for Christ and, and grew a lot of people up in the Lord, I being one of them. Uh, they, they even managed to, uh, to start, to, to, to uh, run, to fund, and to staff a really successful Christian school. But the priority that seemed to outrank all of them in my memory of that church was global missions. And also there were several families and individuals I believe um, at the time four, there were four of us families, um, including actually one of the first missionary families to go to Papua New Guinea under a brand new mission organization called Pioneers, by the way, which was uh, instrumental. This church was instrumental in starting that mission. Uh, It also included a much younger uh, sparing family. And they were sent out from our congregation to be cross-cultural missionaries all across the globe. Look at this picture of the healthy church in Acts 13. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, you getting the pattern there? Worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they uh, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Again, they were looking and listening for the leading of the Lord. And in this instance, it mentions that they were worshiping and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, they were at church as a church together, but they were the church. They were at a place together, and they were humbly walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit and actively seeking God's leading, living in such a way that their life was all about the gospel of Christ. And after more fasting and praying, it says they heard God's clear call to take, listen to this, it was their best people that they took and set them apart to be sent off to parts unknown to share the gospel of Jesus with those who have never heard the name of Jesus. They 
commissioned them, they sent them, they supported them financially and in prayer, and they sent others along with them at different times uh, as missionary teams. Paul ended up doing, uh, well, anyway, depending on who you read, but up to seven different missionary journeys that included 16 or more different regions that that Paul and his guys went to. Uh, And at any different at any different point uh, during that time period, there were some ten others that went along with him. So he didn't do it by himself. They had a vision to reach the world with the gospel. Paul had a vision to reach the world with the gospel. And that church had a global vision to reach the world for the gospel. They were a gospel church on mission. They had a clear gospel-driven passion to know the will of God, to share the message of deliverance to lost people, not just across the street, but around the globe. And this church described in Acts 9.31, where we started, was not healthy and vibrant and growing by accident. So again, how did and how does a healthy church happen? Well, there's something very special about this church that we read uh, read about today. But here's the thing, by God's grace, we can be that same kind of church. A healthy church walks in gospel fear and comfort. A healthy church seeks God's leading. A healthy church lives gospel ministry. A healthy church demonstrates a global vision. A healthy church is a church on mission. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your grace to give us your word, to give us your spirit that lives in us, to give us your people that we don't have to do this Christian life, walk this walk alone, but we can do it together for your kingdom and for your glory. God, make us a church that understands your gospel and lives in light of it and shares the good news of Christ in his saving grace on the cross, in everyday life. And give us a heart and a clear vision to see Christ known around the world. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.